Thank you very much, Rob. <laughs> Most of the noise is here neighbours with the stuff that's actually going so well. Um, it's not a question, but a while back I was with some priests and uh, we were talking about devotion to Our Lady, about 20 of us, and one of them said uh, he thought the church centralised on Our Lady too much. Um, well, obviously that's wrong, but um, he was one of the younger members of the crowd, and um, as you say, in um, in America they've lost devotion to Our Lady. Um, do, do you think it was because they were frightened of putting too much um, emphasis, thinking they were doing wrong, emphasising the role of Our Lady in the church? Because I found afterwards actually this young preacher, this priest's ordination card, and it was a picture of Our Lady in Guadalupe. You know, that's a good question. Uh, anytime I see a healthy movement in the church, I always try to ascertain why this movement is healthy, whereas next door it's not healthy. And it's almost always the case that the healthy movement is inspired by a priest who is a Marian priest. And you say, where did this priest get his love of the Blessed Virgin and his devotion to the Blessed Virgin? In the first place, probably from his good mother. That his good mother would say the family rosary with the priest. But if not, then from the seminary. That the seminaries were beautiful. That it's hard for men to live together in chastity. If you don't believe that, join the army. Very difficult. But, and when priests are, and it's one thing if for two or three years you have to live in a barracks without a woman. But a priest in the Western Rite and all religious in any Rite take vows of chastity never to have contact with the opposite sex in any intimate way. So the great Catholic seminaries understood this and the Blessed Mother was there, was their heart. And they had this great chivalry and this great humanity. Now, why did it die? It is dead. We, uh, and I, I, this, this would be a, a, a meditation in itself, but there's all kinds of cases where it, it was killed in the seminary. We had these, these theologians. Most people don't see how important theologians are. They look helpless and harmless. They look harmless. They mumble things and they, they look complicated and, and uh, they seem to get excited over little Greek words and say, well, who cares about that? You think that an engineer is much more important. But all the theologian have to do is sow a little seed with a sentence and about we're, 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 we're worshipping Mary or the Protestants won't like us or something like that. And little by little, you kill the love of the Blessed Virgin and finally faith of the Blessed Virgin. But you still retain your Christocentric religion for a while. But even that goes. You know what the proof is? For all that the Protestants have claimed that Marian devotion minimizes devotion to Christ, and then certain Roman Catholic theologians went along with it, most of the Protestant churches don't deny Christ now. In other words, that they got rid of the Blessed Virgin to concentrate on Christ. And right now, for the last hundred years in Germany, they've gotten rid of Christ. They've concentrated so much on Christ they don't even know if he existed. 
It's a big scholarly problem whether he existed. So even from the empirical point of view, when Marian devotion is healthy, the religion is Christocentric. But I've heard all these horror stories, and you've probably heard them too. You have updated theologians going to workshops. They're extremely eager to appear scientific and sophisticated. They, they, they get very embarrassed by miracles, virgin births, resurrections, angels singing on Christmas. And above all, they're very embarrassed by the rosary. It reminds them of stupid peasants, women with babushkas, Russian grandmothers. See? And the, so the typical horror story is they'll get up in the pulpit and take the rosary and rip it up and throw it aside and say, we're Christocentric here. And everybody applauds this mature, virile approach until they leave the priesthood or until the thing collapses. So it's a very interesting thing. Uh, I was talking to Father Twaits. Some of you may know of him, Father Hugh Twaits, who's a convert from Anglicanism to the church. And he thinks, I mean, he doesn't presume to give the explanation of why we have such chaos. He thinks the only way out is the rosary. And, and it sounds so simplistic you start looking for babushkas. Say, you had thought that the answer would be some deep uh, German theologian, but he's right. Father Twaits knows that if we can cultivate devotion to the Blessed Virgin, Christ never suffers. Christ becomes more and more important for the reasons I mentioned.
so, so there's nothing as such which would antagonize them further. And let me try and order this as follows. Cardinal Newman noted that theology is mostly deduction, that uh, you, you start with basic principles of faith, mostly from the scripture, sometimes from holy tradition, and then you infer other implications from it, which is what I did now, that all I have to know is that Jesus Christ was born of a woman. And it might take only one sentence in the, in the scripture, but I can spend the rest of my life saying, well, then that woman's kind of important, and, then, and so on and so on. So I have all kinds of inferences. Therefore, the relative smallness of space in the Bible is still not that discouraging precisely because we have all of these inferences and deductions. But secondly, when it comes to the apparitions, there are all kinds of reported apparitions. And any time you have a report of an apparition, the correct thing is to await the judgment of the church. Because uh, I have not the slightest doubt about the authenticity of about 10 or 20 apparitions I have personally read. But the whole point is this, when when true coins circulate, the way to ruin everyone's confidence is to counterfeit false coins, mix them all up, then even when you get a true coin, you don't know it. And that's even more of the case with the Blessed Virgin. You have these absolutely clear revelations, private revelations, but so important for the church at large. And then when you have all of these other alleged revelations, you ought to suspect that some of them might be counterfeit, and when finally they are found fault or ridiculed, then everything else is ridiculed. So this, I say that because I fully agree with Catholic theology that the revelation ended with the deposit of Catholic faith. In other words, we agree, it's not even a question of we agree, we hold, that with the death of the last apostle, probably St. John. There was no more revelation entrusted to the church universal that that was the end of the deposit of faith and the Catholic Church has the, has the charge only of drawing treasures out of this deposit of faith. We hold, however, that the deposit of faith has three poles. Holy Scripture, but also holy tradition because St. John himself said that Christ did so many things which are not recorded here. Maybe they weren't recorded in his gospel, but he spoke to his disciples about it. And his disciples spoke to their disciples. Also, the, te the living teaching authority of the church. So now, whenever, whenever you and I talk about even the development of the revelation as, as ending with St. John, we need not just the Bible alone, not just the church alone. We need these three legs. And if any one of them is crippled, the thing falls over. The church, the word of God, the tradition, which the church is guardian of. When then a private revelation, even though it's a momentous one, like La Salette, Lord, Fatima, Rudabach, to say Catherine, and so on, we... We are always, the good position is always to be receptive. Because if God wants to communicate with us, let's not insist, no, no, it all ended with St. John. No, God, God is free to communicate anytime God wants to communicate, and so to his blessed mother. And then let us abide by the church. Now, I think people of goodwill, again, will not be turned off by this, 
last night at Walsingham, right after my talk, we had a little tea together in this charming house. And two of the people in, in, a, in the house, they were into Hinduism and, and they, were, they had communes, they had this and that. They're a married couple with three children, extremely interested in religion, extremely intelligent, but not really having a clue where it is to be found. So we started talking about Fatima with them, and they ended by joining us in the Rosh. Now, I don't know, uh, I don't say they're going to convert, but they certainly were not offended by Fatima. As a matter of fact, when you read Fatima, and you take a second look at the world, you say, if ever a thing has been humanly proved, if ever a prophecy has been humanly proved, it's in Fatima. So I, I really do think that, and I think that this is part of an apostolate in the parish, inform yourself and your family. Everything should start with man, husband and wife and little child, if possible, so that the whole family grows in this conversation rooted in the Bible, in the faith, in the Blessed Mother, in prayer, and in these serious Marian apparitions. And I think you all know there are certainly things which are absolutely incontrovertible, other things which seem good, not yet judged upon, and other things, to my opinion, nonsense. There are certain alleged Marian apparitions which I think are pure counterfeit, and I'm quite cautious about them. I don't even want to say which ones, because you make enemies all around. But uh, we ought to be cautious, but we ought to not be embarrassed by them. Yes? Lady. Um, the, uh, may I just uh, put you on the spot a little here? In this country, we've heard a lot about test tube babies and surrogate mothers recently. Uh, can we have your opinions on that and uh, what it has to do with Christianity? Uh, yes. Uh, you know, I was on a panel. I don't know if you people have heard of our great TV stars in America. One of them is David Susskind. And he loves to set opposing people at each other so we kill each other. So three years ago, I was on a television show on surrogate motherhood. And it's a, what they did, they had a very nice woman there, five months pregnant, with Mr. Smith's child. And Mr. and Mrs. Smith were sitting in the studio while this surrogate mother was telling how wonderful it is that she's carrying a baby and once it's born, she'll give it to the Smith and get her money and, and leave. And everybody was happy. She got her money, the Smiths got the baby, and Susskind got his show. You know, that was pretty interesting, right? And you'd be surprised what sort of a, a, an extremist they made me out to be because I thought it was absolutely sinful and wrong. And the reason is this. this, this is, the key to this whole problem of sexual ethics was given by Pope Paul in his encyclical on birth control, Humani Vitae. It's very easy to say it but it would take an entire lecture to develop it. He said, with respect to sexual powers, human sexual powers, the human person is not the Lord, but the steward of these powers. And this means we, we look upon human sex as sacred. We need not look upon animal sex as sacred. We are the lords of animal nature. So if you think it makes good husbandry, 
to make this bull with that cow and to freeze the sperm of this prize bull and mail it to uh, Birmingham to, to fertilize that cow. Well, that, that is kind of strange, but I don't think you're committing a sin because we're the lords of nature. We kill animals. We enslave animals. We make them do our will. We make them perform for us and so on. And certainly we do that with lesser things like trees. We kill trees our wood and all that. So in the Bible is told we are the lords of nature. When it comes to persons, we're not the lords. This sexual faculty we have, in one sense, is just as interesting as, as our breathing, our respiratory system, our digestive system. They're all very mysterious. But this sexual faculty has this unique link to God in many, many ways. And the one way is, to the extent that it's procreative, it involves God's causality. Every baby conceived is because God directly creates a soul. Whereas every kitten or every calf conceived, God does not have to starve. Nature accounts for the proliferation of animal life. So the human sexual faculty summons God to act. Secondly, when God does act, what is created is not an animal spirit which lives for ten years and then disappears upon death. What is created is an immortal soul. So upon the occasion of my using sexual powers, I summon God, and I am liable to summon God to make an immortal soul for all eternity, praising God or, or being uh, suffering because of sin. There's a third reason why sex is sacred, it involves the inner sanctum of each one of us. My dear friend Hildebrand wrote the greatest book ever on sex. In English, it's called In Defense of Purity. In German, it was Purity and Virginity. And it's a masterful study of sex, of marriage, of consecrated virginity. And the secret to the depth of that book was Hildebrand, for perhaps the first time, showed sex is not like any other biological affair it concerns the inner sanctum. So even if there is no procreation, the very fact that I expose myself to a woman, the very fact that I have intercourse with a woman means it comes from the depth. And unless I have a prior marriage to the woman, I degrade her and I degrade me. So for all these reasons, therefore, when humans engage in sex, it must be covered by modesty it must bear the sight of God. It must have the stamp of chastity and purity about it. And this means sex only within marriage. And by marriage you mean this solemn commitment forever. Sex only in normal ways, never perverted ways. And sex wherein we do not arrogate to ourselves lordship over the faculty. We reverently and gratefully employ the faculty. And for all these reasons, this horrible test tube baby and artificial insemination is absolutely excluded. And isn't it strange that the very people who are telling us how overpopulated the world is and we can't spend all this money on these little children, they'll spend a million dollars for one test tube baby and then they want all kinds of congresses applauding them. They act like the magicians manipulating physiological data so that they act as if they are the creators. And this is the sin of irreverence. So, uh, and it's getting more and more. Uh, it, it's, 
I am afraid if, if someone wonders about my prognosis, I would say I look around now and I see this incredible irreverence, above all with respect to human life, and I fear the justice of God and the wrath of God, and I fear war as the just punishment for this, but I also fear for my own self and my own civilization, and above all for my own children, that year by year we become more and more arrogant medical profession, the legal profession, and certain theologians who have gone a-whoring and who, and who bless all this. And we are going to run the world and we'll say who lives and who dies in the birth field. We'll manipulate egg, ova, and sperm to create this little test tube baby. We'll crush a million babies in the womb. Adults, well, if we don't like your style of life, we'll invite you to die, and then we'll tell you to die. There's a governor in Colorado, America, who said to a group of elderly people, it's about time you people recognize your duty to die. So he's inviting volunteers. A few minutes later, a few years later, don't worry, they'll be giving out the tickets to die. And then... So I say that this frightens me. It frightens me to see this, to see science and technology in no way serving human values, but becoming more and more arrogant. And this, this, and what world will our children inhabit? I don't know. This is why you better pray the rosary. You better get, you better form giants, moral giants in your family. They're not going to survive. If, if your children are not giants, they're not going to survive the next 30 years. They will capitulate. They will be the victims of arrogance, government arrogance, scientific arrogance, and sometimes theological arrogance, which whips up the other two. Yes. I want to ask you a general question, please. Um, the mother of any family, I think you would agree, is the central force of the family. Uh, do you think that the present generation worse than, say, 30 years ago? And if so, uh, is it mainly due to the parents or the mother that you know, being put under the current pressures? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, looking after them? Let me put it this way. I have a colleague, uh, or I like to call my protege, Dr. John Rayo. He has his doctor's degree from Oxford. And I hope every two years I shall have the honor of going up and down the U.K., and I hope that in the intervening years, Rayo will. And I mention Rayo because his entire study has been on what is called the social question. I myself emphasize individual personal problems, but Dr. Rayo studied the Jesuits uh, of Rome. They have this excellent journal, the Civilta Cattolica, and he studied them 130 years ago when they responded to the syllabus of errors. And, and it's a marvelous thing. And Rayo will show you how it's one thing that I am baptized, I know my faith, I marry a woman, we have children, and maybe a lot of other people do the same thing and things are pretty good. But if we have a government, a state, a culture, an entertainment, a medical profession, a legal profession, an educational system, which are anti-Christ or hostile to Christ or hostile to God, the individual person is contaminated. And this is the real reason that I'm just thinking in America, we had enormous personal strength and piety in America. I mean, we had, 
we have 44 million people, and th most of the last wave of immigrants were all Catholics. America, probably by the Civil War, had few Catholics, but we had the Germans come over, and then the Irish come over, then the Italians, then the Spanish, every one of them Catholic, and we had enormously strong private lives. But these private lives, Catholic private lives, you had sin. You're not going to eradicate sin except in a utopian's mind. But at least people knew they were sinners. They were strong family ties. But this strong personal life was compromised and finally destroyed by a secular humanistic state, Supreme Court, educational system. We used to have Catholic lawyers, Catholic doctors, guilds. They found that that wasn't so important. So little by little, Christ was removed from the center. In America, he never was the center of our public life. He was the center of our private life. He was removed. Now, so long as the church was vigorous, the church could delay the disaster. And we had a vigorous church in America. I mean, until 20 years ago. Real vigorous. But the vigorous church was not necessarily deep enough or wise enough or powerful enough to change social structures. And I'm not talking about socialism versus capitalism. I'm talking about what I said before, lawyers, doctors, uh, educational, hospitals, and so on. Christ has never been king. And things are getting still worse. I mean, the last 20 years have seen the success of secularization of Italy, Spain, Ireland, removed that one little paragraph 44, which alleged, which at least acknowledged that the people were mostly Roman Catholic. You know, Ireland has become more secularized. So that's the big problem. If you say, why are things worse now? They're undeniably worse now. People are less happy. Marriages are less happy, less strong. Children are less happy. Education is far less efficient. People say, well, at least they're getting a better education. Maybe. What, are you talking about planet Earth? I've been teaching college for 30 years, and even intellectually things are spiraling down. And I say that, uh, how did it all happen? Well, uh, I mean, things are undeniably bad. Why are they undeniably bad? Because the church became more and more powerless to resist, and as a result, we lost our children. We tried our best in our home, and then the children went to the secular world and lost their faith. The clergy went to the secular world, and Christ became more and more irrelevant. And then I'll tell you one of the fruits of this. And this, this continues on. In other words, it's bad, and because it's bad, the next semester, the next year will be worse. That the very fact that women's liberation, the very fact that we set the secular society with a few smart aleck, uh, noisy people have convinced women that they're far more important and, and to their family, and they're far more fulfilled by working than by not working, when they have young children in the house, this is going to guarantee the next generation of hooligans. Now, I admit some women have to work, but we, because of enormous family pressures, but our answer should be, well, let's temporarily tolerate this, but let's change everything so they won't have to work. Let's redesign family allowances, uh, alimony proceeding, anything. But a woman with a child should never work. And I know all kinds of women, they're so proud. I have them for my students. 
well, this extra income allows me to give my son a pony and, and, and clothes, and I didn't have them. And meanwhile, the son has a door, has a key, and he goes in on his own. And a few years from now, he's going to throw the pony away, and he's going to just do his own thing. And all this fulfillment, to be a wife, to be a mother, that's not fulfilling. But to be an executive, uh, talking about Petrov, that's fulfilling. I, I know all kinds of successful women in business they're a disaster for the most part. Above all, if it's at the expense of their family, if they want a career, all right. But you can't be mother, wife, and businesswoman. So I said all of these things are secularistic, and they've attacked the integrity of the home. And we, we better, Chesterton, here's another Englishman. These people have all kinds of uh, good persons. I don't say Chesterton's on the level of Newman, but he understood this stupidity of secularized humanism. And you should read his book, What's Wrong with the World. Uh, and he gives an excellent critique of this madness whereby people desert the one thing that can give them earthly happiness, family relationships. This is what it's all about. You live, you die, you, 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 you teach each other, you play the piano, you meet each other. This is what life is all about. They leave this alone so that they can have a better flat and then everybody has, they have all these material possessions, but they don't talk to each other. And the children are considered a disaster and a nuisance. And we, we send them to the day nursery. That, that's the symbol of the modern home. So I think the future is still more bleak and what gets me is people say yes, and the only answer is more dirt, day nurses. You know, Bertrand Russell, another Englishman, but don't be proud of this man. Uh, he is, uh, you're going to do penance, you better walk from here to waltzing him on your knees. To Bertrand Russell, he's a very important philosopher, but he's a disaster. But he wrote a snotty little book. Most of his books are snotty. But he wrote one about the future, and he, this is about 1930. He was always in the avant-garde of divorce, abortion, uh, promiscuity, swapping wives and all that. And he said that it's too much to ask women to bear children. It's such a mess. In the future, we'll get a few well-paid professionals, surrogates, and we'll let them have the babies, and the rest of us, I mean, can live the dignified human life. This, this, is, this is the vision. And most people think that's wonderful. But, well, I guess we do need a few babies that maybe I would even want one to have a toy around the house. But if I don't get a baby, I'll get a cocker spaniel. They're kind of cute, too. And at least when they get too old, you just put them away. Because the baby will put you away when he gets old. <laughs> But I mean, we're gone wild. The whole thing's wild. We really need, we really need to investigate what is important for what. So that's another subject you want to talk about.